that dance was incredible. I'm kind of stunned and I got a burning, my chest is burning. That was amazing. And I have to say that the, the woman that choreographed it, Rachel Bailey, lives in my house. And I'm so proud of her. So go, Rachel Bailey. You're awesome. Um, I would like to say that I contributed to the dance, but um, she wouldn't do the moonwalk. And that's kind of my best move. I know the moonwalk, and I can do a little break dance thing that lasts about a half a second. And she wouldn't work it in. So I guess that room and board is off for the month of January. Anyway, okay, well, I'm excited to be here. I'm just going to look around. There's a lot of people, okay? People tell you when you get nervous that you're supposed to imagine people sitting in their underwear. So, I don't know. What do you do when you're supposed to make a covenant with your eyes? Do you imagine 10,000 people in their underwear? I'm going to choose not to do that. So go ahead and feel comfortable that I'm not imagining you naked. Isn't that good of me? How we get that out of our system? Now, I'm excited to share today... Um, I'm going to share a message that I've, I've spoken on several times at the One Thing Regionals. It's something that is dear to my heart from the Song of Solomon. So I apologize if you've heard it, kind of I apologize, because I get something new out of it every time I share it. So honestly, I do it for me, and you just happen to be here with me. Um, but before I start, I just want to talk a little bit about my family. I am a mother of three. A proud mother of three, I need to add that. Sydney Tate Roberts is 10 years old. And we have Chloe Dane, who's seven, and Elijah, Elijah Jackson, who's three. And I love my kids. Sydney is an amazing young woman who loves Jesus. She provokes me. She has a tender heart. She loves healing. I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she will raise the dead. My 10-year-old daughter is going to walk in signs and wonders that are going to astound me. And I love to see that in her and to see it being formed in her, God's call and gift, giftings in her life. And I want to do all that I can to foster that and make a way. And then we have Chloe, who is our spicy, spicy girl. I love that child. She probably has a little bit of me inside of her. She's fearless. And um, she'll say whatever she wants to say to whoever she wants to say it. Let the reader understand. Fortunately, she likes me. She lets me think I'm leading her. So far, it's working out. And then we have Elijah Jackson. Whoa. The three-year-old wonder. If I live through this child, I'm going to write a book. He is something. The other day I was putting him to bed and he's kind of, he's talking to himself and I, I said, Elijah, what are you, what are you saying? And he said, I'm not talking to you. I'm praying to Jesus. <laughs> it's like, okay, sorry, Elijah. So it's fun. I appreciate raising my children in the context of night and day prayer. It's an honor and it's terrifying. I never want them to lose the sense of awe and wonder of being in the presence of the Lord. I, I'm, I'm gripped by that, that all the days of their life, they would know that it's a privilege to be raised around the presence of the Lord and not grow accustomed to it, yet their heart become cold. And I pray every day that, they, that their love would abound still more and more in all knowledge and depth of insight, that they would be found without offense until the day that they see him. 
And I want that for my children. I want them in love with Jesus. I don't care if they go to an Ivy League school, although that would be cool. I don't care if they end up a garbage man. I want them in love with Jesus at the end. And so I love raising them here. I love the ministry of the Children's Equipping Center that that Lenny and Tracy LaGuardia are telling my children to expect the dead to be raised when they lay their hands on them. It's nothing short of a privilege to raise my children here. And it's it's great. I love it. And then I would have to mention Dwayne because he'd be mad if I didn't. No, no I... I want to mention how much I love my husband just to give you a high vision for love. I am in love. I'm, we've been married 15 years, and, and he bought me these shoes on our 15-year anniversary. That's a good man, ladies. That's a good man. We love shoes. He loves shoes. I married well. So Duane is my greatest champion. There are times where I, I forget who I am. And he holds me by the shoulders and he tells me again who I am. And he, he makes a way for me. And, and when my days feel dark and dreary, he says, no, 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 this is where you're going. This is who you are. This is what God is forming in you. And I appreciate that. I, I'm in love with him. I, it's an honor to be his wife. And, um, I mean, we fight, you know, I, I won't go there, but we do. It's a real relationship. But it's, it's a good one. And I see a lot of, now that I have all these young adults in front of you, many of you, uh, in front of me, many of you aren't married. And I just want to say, don't just settle for anyone. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you're 20 and you want to be married so bad, you would marry the first guy that came along. Well, don't. Don't wait. Wait for the good one. Wait for the one that sees you as the pearl of great price. What if you got married at 35 instead of 19? Oh, well, wouldn't you rather have a rich, good marriage than just a relationship? And I have seen bad marriages, you guys. It is not worth it. Wait for the good one. Wait for it. Anyway, I could talk about that for an hour, but I won't. Okay, turn with me to Song of Solomon um, 4.9. Now, it's typically a couple hours that I should take to develop the storyline of the Song of Solomon and um, give the introduction and, and set the context and all the different views that people interpret the Song of Solomon. But I'm not going to do that. So bear with me. Um, suffice it to say, I'm taking the angle that, that this is an allegorical picture and that Jesus is the bridegroom and that you are the bride in this case. And there are many other views, and they're awesome. But that's where I'm going to start with. And, you know, typically guys, they, they think about the Song of Solomon, and, and maybe they just kind of go, oh, whatever, weird. It is weird. It, it's strange. Without the, the Holy Spirit, it's silly words on the page. But when the Holy Spirit gives insight, it is unbelievable. So gentlemen, let me put you at ease right now. I'm not calling you to imagine yourself in a white dress. Okay? Take a deep breath. I'm not calling you to get in touch with your feminine side today. You don't have to love flowers. 
You can still wear your brute cologne. Just relax. I'm not going to ask you to do weird things. There's going to be no hand-holding and dancing, okay? So just relax. And oftentimes, girls sometimes love the Song of Solomon because they love the idea of marriage, and that's awesome. But sometimes I've seen they love the Song of Solomon until they get married, and then an earthly bridegroom came and took the place of that one that they were hoping for. So this is something different that I'm talking about. I'm talking about an eternal position of privilege as the bride of Christ that transcends gender, that transcends your demographic position in this life. So girls relax and guys relax, okay? I'm not going to ask you to do anything strange today, necessarily. Okay, let's jump right in. So Song of Solomon 4.9. and 10 is probably mainly where I'm going to stick. So I'm going to read it. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all, than all spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Okay, first glance, you read this, or I do. I'll I'll just tell it to you how it, it comes to me. I first read this and go, you've ravished my heart. Okay, weird. I don't use the word ravished. It it doesn't have any real value to me. And, And I wonder, well, what's ravished mean? Who uses that? And a lot of the the terminology in the Song of Solomon, it's just not everyday language, so you can't read it fast. You gotta slow down, you gotta dial down, you gotta look things up in the dictionary and try to figure out what's being said here. And so the first thing I do is I look at ravished and I go, ravished? What does that mean? So I looked it up. Definition of ravished. Overwhelmed with emotion, seized, taken hold of, stolen, steal, Conquered, wounded, held spellbound, enraptured, enthralled, delighted. So this is God now, is looking at you and he's saying, you have ravished my heart. You know what my response to that is? No, don't be, don't feel that way about me. I'm comfortable with God feeling that way about Johnny sitting next to me. But don't look at me and say that because you don't know what you're saying. That's my immediate response is, I don't think so. And then when I meditate a little bit more, I've ravished his heart. I've conquered him. I've overwhelmed him. He's enraptured by me. I've stolen his heart. He's wounded in love towards me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Who are you? Who are you that you would feel that way about me? Who are you? You're God. You created the universe. And you're saying this about me? I don't like it. The reason I don't like it is because I feel like a flight risk. I'm a risk here. Love someone else better like that. Don't look at me and say those things. It scares me. 
shame rises up in my heart. My response to it is, I don't want you to love me like that because you're God and I'm human and I know what I'm capable of and I know the ways that I've sinned and I know the ways that I can walk away. I am afraid of myself. But he still says it. And he doesn't just say, Jennifer, your ministry accomplishments and all the things that you will ever do and all the victories you've ever had and yada, yada, yada. That's what's captured me. That's what's caused me to feel intense desire over you. No, he says, you have. Meaning, as you are now. Right now. Right now, God is looking down at you and he's overwhelmed with love and delight over you. That takes revelation, to be honest, because it's, it's so intense. It's so extravagant that it doesn't compute in our finite understanding. That the God that, that could put stars in the sky and rearrange them if he wanted to just for fun looks down at my weak attempt at life and I've ravished him. That's intense. Because it makes me feel like you don't know me. Don't feel this way about me. Shame rises up. Do you feel that right now? That the, What answers back is, no, 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 no. You're God. Don't feel so intensely towards me. I'm a human being. It messes with me. It messes with me because God even had to allow himself to feel those emotions towards you. He's allowing himself to experience a ravished heart over you. The God that, that sustains the heavens and the earth, who holds the earth in the palm of his hand, is allowing himself to feel conquered by you. Oh my goodness, you know what it does to me? I want to run towards him and say, Oh, don't love me like that, but love me like that. I want to give him all that I can. It's a crazy little word, ravished. You've ravished my heart. And the thing that, that adds the punch to this is that God is the author of beauty. Therefore, he can decide what's beautiful. You may have been rejected your whole entire life. You may have three eyes. You could be 700 pounds overweight. You may have a unibrow with a hairy mole. (laughs) Let's just face it. If you got all that going on in one package, you're probably not doing so good in this life. It's not going, it's not working out for you. But it is to God. Because he looks past all that. And he sees into the heart of man. And he sees that you loved him. That he offered his son as a sacrifice. And you said yes. And he was ravished over you from that moment on until the end. You can't chase him away. He's on your tail. And he will stay there until you're convinced of his affection for you. You get afraid of the end of the age? I want to tell you, be afraid of the love of God. He's coming after you. He wants a bride that will be made ready. He will shake whatever needs to be shaken. But he does it because he's in love with you. Because he's ravished over you. God is after your heart. And our biggest defense 
is to say yes. We don't want to say yes to that extravagant love. We have a million and one issues as to why we don't receive it. We think salvation is the beginning and the end of our relationship with Jesus. Salvation is the open door to commune with God all the days of your life. God wants you. He wants you as you are. He sees who you are and he sees the beginning from the end. He knows where you're going and he knows that the answer to your wholeheartedness issue is you don't believe his affection for you. If you did, you would live differently. You would live differently. That's your issue. Your issue is that the love of God has not taken root in the deepest part of your life where you really live. When at night and the lights are down and you're laying in your bed, you're afraid of God. But you shouldn't be. Because His delight is in you. He is ravished over you. You are the one that He wants. There is no other kind. You guys were a mess. Look around. Your neighbor's all jacked up just like you are. This is why he came to earth to live among us, to live a sinless life, to fight for you unto death because he wanted you as a bride. You! You may be an ugly bride, but he doesn't think so. The body of Christ may treat you like you're white trash, but Jesus sees something beautiful in you. Isn't that good news? That causes me to want to run to Him instead of from Him. The only ally you need is Jesus. He's ravished over you. Funny little word. Although I wouldn't mind if Dwayne told me that sometimes. Sweetie, on date night, let's start using ravished. So you have not your accomplishments. You could be in a wheelchair for the rest of your days and never do a single thing that the eyes of men will see. But the Lord sees your heart. And he says, you have ravished me. And you can live great in God all the days of your life by simply loving Jesus as you are and giving Him your whole heart. I love that about God. He's the great equalizer. You're looking for an equal opportunity employer? His name is Jesus. That makes me feel good. I didn't come from the best family, so I I need a little help. I need someone who sees beyond the external, beyond the gift. So this holy emotion has violently taken hold of God towards you. I don't get that. I honestly don't. I'm not just saying that to try to look like I'm cool. I don't fully understand what God thinks when he looks at me and what he feels when he looks at me. I want to because I believe I would live differently. We become transformed by the renewing of our mind. You've been beaten up your whole life, okay? So, yeah, your dad was bad and your husband's this and you were abused and you were poor and, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to belittle those things. But what if our identity came from something bigger and greater that was eternal that didn't change? 
What if who you are is defined in the heart of God? And what if you believed it? What if you lived differently all the days of your life when you believe that a God who created the universe looks down on you with delight in his heart? Wouldn't you go towards him instead of from him? Wouldn't you give him everything? Wouldn't you? I want to. I do this much, but I want to give all that I have, all that I am, all that I can to this God who gave all for me. So, yada, yada, yada. So you've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Now, this is the part I really, really like. Well, I like it all. By the way, it's a little hot up here. I did wear a sweater for lots of reasons. Um, so I'm hoping this heat actually produces something like a tan. I don't know if that happens, but maybe good. And, and the shine that you see, it's really not the Holy Spirit. It's just oil. It's just a T-zone. So if you're thinking I got the Shekinah glory up here, no, I'm just sweating. Okay? Just sweat. T-zone. All you girls know what I'm talking about. All the guys are like, T-zone? What's a T-zone? Does that have to do with baseball? Is that like t-ball? No. My big thing I always want to do, I've never had the guts to do it, but in a ministry line when people are coming around to anoint you with oil, I've always wanted to say, not my t-zone, please. But I haven't done it yet. Seems slightly, you know, irreverent, but I kind of live that life. Okay. So you ravish my heart, my sister, my spouse. Okay, he uses the, the, the term, my sister, my spouse, he's, he uses it seven times. So the point is, he wants you to get it. We're called to get this. And the part that I really like about it is being called his sister. It, well, well, first of all, it's a double revelation of the heart of God. Some people, um, well, no, I won't say what some people say. I'll just say what I say, because it's good enough. Jesus. <laughs> That was all for me. I'm just having fun just because. Um, God gives us a double revelation of his heart. We are his sister and we are his spouse. And being his sister, and again, guys, this is not a gender thing. This is a position of privilege. So if you think you can check out because I use the word sister, well, you can't. Just like girls can't check out when we're called the, the sons of God or, or the Lord talks about mankind. It's, it's us, okay? It's, it's us. So, again, you don't have to picture yourself in tights, guys. Take the wedding dress off. You Just wear your normal clothes. You're good. So, my sister, my spouse. What he's saying in this statement, he's saying, I know you in your humanity. Isn't that good? Jesus knows you in your humanity. He really is God, and he really is man, and he really came to earth, and he lived on this earth so that he could buy us back. He lived a sinless life to buy us back. So he understands our humanity. See, I want to be known in that way. Now, Duane and I, we've been married 15 years. I hope I get shoes next year anniversary, too, because these ones are really cute. Um... And there are things about my life that Duane doesn't know. He can't relate to. I have five older brothers. I'm the youngest, six kids, blah, blah, blah. 
we have, my brothers and I have some family history that even Dwayne can't relate to. He doesn't know it. We get together and it's, you know, we start telling the family joke and we have family understanding and he kind of feels like an outsider. And although he's my husband and he has my true heart, there's an element of me that he doesn't know because we weren't raised in the same family. Even though we could, you know, tell our family stories until we're blue in the face, we didn't, we weren't raised in the same home. So there's an element of being known in that context. Jesus is saying, by calling you his, his sister, by calling you his brother, he's saying, I know you. Truly, I know you. And the best part, Hebrews 2.11 says, I know you, yet I'm not ashamed of you. Now, I tell you what, I'm not going to really go there, but I have some relatives that I'm ashamed of. Maybe you do too. Do you ever find yourself looking for them on Jerry Springer? (laughs) The toothless ones, you know what I'm talking about? We all have some of those. We have some of those relatives in our family background that you really hope they don't show up at the wedding. You don't know what they'll do. You really wish they'd changed their last name. It's just not good. Well, guess what? Jesus is not ashamed of you. He, you might think he needs to be, but he's not. He's not ashamed of you. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows your humanity. He knows from where you've come. He knows where you're going. I want to be known in that way. I'm not too interested in fluffy words. I'm not too interested in someone saying they love me when they don't know me. In American culture, we typically, we say I love you kind of like a greeting. Have you ever noticed that? You can meet someone at church for the first time. You shake their hand and they say, I love you. Like, what are you talking about? You don't know me. Well, I don't know about you. To me, it doesn't mean anything unless they really know me. Don't say you love me unless you know me. And I remember Duane and I were, were dating. And just so you know, that's a miracle in and of itself. I was a very intense young woman. I became a Christian when I was 16, and I went hardcore. I would only listen to Keith Green, Twyla Paris, and Kelly Willard. It was in the days of Striper and Petra, but I thought they were compromisers. Duane listened to Striper and Petra, and I was like, you need to deal with your area as a compromise friend. Uh Uh-uh. None of that. No big hair, no tights, nothing. We're going strictly the Word of God. Kelly Willard, Psalm, Sims, spiritual songs. So I was an intense young woman. I was called the nun in high school. I wouldn't date. I had an early revelation of the bride of Christ, that I was his bride. I took it so literal that I believed dating was adultery. And I also had a little edge to me, so I loved to preach to you if you were dating that you were in adultery. That was my very favorite thing to talk about. That was my core message. You adulterers. So you can imagine around prom time what a joy I was to be around. I had a a Bible study or a prayer meeting that we would meet um, every morning in my high school, five mornings a week. We would meet and pray for a revival in my high school. I like to keep it around five people. That way I knew we were hardcore. 
If we ever got up to 30, oh gosh, compromise had entered that room. And I start preaching them right down. We get right back down to five people. Because you can't have 30 followers. You have five followers. Because it's hard to flock with me. I'm intense. So I had some, some learning to do in the grace of God and things. Tact was another good one. Truth wasn't always the most important thing. Anyway, so I was a joy to be around. So all that to say, the very fact that I ever dated Dwayne is huge. Huge. And so I was afraid to give him my heart. We're dating and everything in me. I mean, I've got the butterflies. I've got the goofiness. I'm messed up over this guy. I, I can't believe it. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified to give my heart. I, I'm terrified that, well, I know, I'm confident that once he truly sees who I am, he's out the door. Of course. Why wouldn't he be? Because, you know, deep down you're like, I'm a mess. As soon as someone finds out, they're going to blow the whistle and this whole thing's over. So I would, Duane would say things, you know, I love you. You're great. You're this and that. He'd say you're honest. And I'd rebuttal. I could lie. And <laughs> poor guy. I mean, I made it hard for him. He'd say, you know, you're so real. I'm like, I could be fake in an instant. How do you know I'm not being fake now? Just, he worked, let's just suffice it to say he worked really hard, okay? He worked really hard to win me over. It was just, you know, I was paralyzed on the inside. But yet I'm, I'm so drawn to this man and I don't know what to do. So we're in premarital counseling, and we do this um, premarital test where I answer questions about myself, how I would act in stressful situations and stuff like that. And he answers questions about himself. And then I answer questions about how I believe he would act. And he answers questions about how I believe I would act. So the point of the exercise is to see how well we know each other. Well, I'm in anguish for a week because we're going to go back for the test results. And you guys, I know that he's going to see who I really am because I was super honest. He's going to see who I really am and he's going to walk the other direction. So I'm, I'm gearing up to lose the best thing I've ever known. He's honestly, Dwayne's the first person I ever trusted. I've never been in love before and I trusted him and everything in me was afraid, afraid. He's going to find out what I'm like and he's out of here. So we take this test and they put up... Um, Duane's answers first, and it's like a little graph on a transparency. And then they, they put my answers over the top of that to see how well I know him and where I'm off on the graph. And, and I did pretty good. I'm like, yeah. And kind of thinking I'm cool. Like, at least I know what I'm saying when I say I love you. So I did pretty good. I missed it on a few points. But for the most part, I got it. And then they, they're getting ready to put my answers and his answers over the top. And, you know, I, I, re, I just remember it like it was yesterday. Like, here it is. Here it is. We're going to find out this bad boy does not know me. He's out the door. It's over today. And I'm terrified. And they put my answers up and they put his, his answers up. It was like it was the same thing. He knew me. And I went, what? You know me? And you still say those things? It did something deep in me because he's a human being with limited understanding. How much more God who's generous, who loves me till the end, and he truly knows me. It set something in place in my inner man that I'm known by God and loved full well. 
Oh my goodness. So when he says, my sister, he's saying, I know you. I know who you are. I've seen you since you were this high. I knew you in your mother's womb. I know why you respond and react the way that you do. I see it all. And we run around in our little dog and pony show dance trying to please the heart of God when we have his affection. All we have to do is open the recesses of our heart and say yes to him in our inner man. Let him come in there. Do not hold him at a distance, but let him in. He knows what he wants, you guys. It's you. It's you. He wants you. He's ravished over you. Messed me up that day. It's like, who is this human being that loves me? And you guys, I need to tell you, it wasn't like really great things that you're proud of that were displayed on this test. It was stuff like, you know, becomes dominant when insecure. Yeah. Who's looking for that in a wife? It's not on the top 10 or the top 150. No, this was, this, it was a real test and he knew it. He chose me. Dwayne chose me. I was chosen. God chooses you. You think you've tricked him? You think he doesn't know you? You think you can hide your sin from him? You think you can run the other way because you're afraid of him? He sees you, knows you, loves you, and calls you near. The beauty of the second part of this this verse is he says, My sister, my spouse. Meaning, I know you so well, yet I still choose you for this position of privilege with me. Wow! Now, I want to let you know, there are two types of people probably in this room right now. We have those that need to cast off restraint. And we have those that probably should put a little restraint on. Now, if you are, if you're thinking, I'm telling you, go sin wildly. The Lord just thinks you're so cute. No, it's not what I'm talking about. Because I'm confident in Dwayne's love, should I go sleep around? Do you know how disgusting that is? No. It should lead you to wholeheartedness. You find out that this God is loyal to you in your darkest hour when you give him everything. Some of you need to cast off restraint because you've lived confined. And God says, cast off that restraint. Come into the Holy of Holies and let me love you as you long to be loved. That's what you need to do. Many of you in this room, I'm calling you cast off restraint. And go headlong. Go hard. Don't give up. You don't let your family background hold you up. You keep going. You find out who you are as you look in the face of Jesus. He'll change your name. He chooses you as you are. Cast off restraint and go hard. And then there are others of you in this room. Somehow you think you've tricked God. That you can, you know, dabble in pornography as long as you have worship music on in the background. No! Sick and wrong, friends. Sick and wrong. No. That's not cute. 
That's not beautiful. The wages of sin is death. I call you to holiness today. I call you return to your first love. Return to your first love. And when you turn, you will find the God from Psalm 51 who has a generous spirit towards you. When you repent, you find out that everything is made right in the presence of God. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you from your sin. He will lift you up out of the ashes and sit you with princes. I'm calling you, many of you need to repent. To get your lives right. You know why? Because Jesus died for you. You are not a slave to sin. Your generation has told you, oh yeah, we have a problem with pornography. Yeah, one in seven girls, they've been, you know, whatever. We've got eating disorders. Yeah, it's just kind of how it is in my generation. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. You are not a slave to sin. You've been set free. You're called an heir. You're called an heir to the throne of God. Walk worthy of this calling. Walk worthy of this calling. You're his bride. He chose you to lavish his affection upon. Isn't that good? I love that. I want to be loved. Choose me, choose me. Psalm 73, verse 21. Now this is another picture of being known by God, and then I'm going to move on. I stumbled upon this psalm when um, I was going through a really hard time in my family. I was incredibly disillusioned with God. Everything that I ever thought would happen... All the good things, it didn't look like they were happening. Life was falling apart. It was just awful. Without going into detail, it was awful. I was, it was just awful. Anyway, so I, I want to throw in the towel. I'm, I'm debating. I don't want to love you anymore, Jesus. This is too hard. You tricked me. You made me feel like everything was going to be all right. You, you, you looked at me and you saw this little girl raised in a logging town in Shelton, Washington, and, and you, you, you saved my soul. But what's this? What's my life before me now? It's a mess. Everything ends bad. Yada, yada, yada. So I'm just doing this dialogue with the Lord. I'm like, I don't want to love you anymore. But I do. What do I do? I'm mad at you. I don't want to love you anymore. And so I'm reading through Psalms and... And I find Psalm 73, and it it messes me up. Because I'm reading through it, and I find out that I am in the Bible. It says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless. I I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And I'm reading this, and I'm going, yeah, that's me. I mean, I felt like that. I felt like a wild animal in the presence of the Lord. I was so mad and so hurt, so disillusioned. I didn't want to love him, but I did. And I didn't know how to not love him anymore. And And so when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And then it goes on. Yet, I am always with you. And I went, you're with me right now? Don't love me like this. I don't want to be loved like this. 
And then afterwards, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, however it goes. Now, we all know the famous part, but I don't think that the author would have written the famous part of whom have I in heaven but you if he hadn't tasted God's loyalty in his darkest hour. God is the ally you've been looking for, friends. He is your answer. He sees you, knows you, and chooses you. So you've ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. My sister, I know you, you're a mess, but I still want you. And in fact, I want you so much, I'm calling you my spouse. I'm calling you my bride. I'm choosing you for affection. And then it goes on. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. One look of your eyes. You guys, you have crazy lives. I have a crazy life. And I'm an extremist. And so I've had days where I've been so mad at my husband's life. I think 50 hours in the prayer room again in a, in a week must be nice. Uh. And I'm all grumpy when he comes home. And I say things like, yeah, it's, your life is easier than mine. Da, da, da. Well, it's not true. And I think if I can't give the Lord 50 hours a week, then he shall have none. Isn't that ridiculous? I robbed myself of God. It's dumb. And so there you are. You know, you're not a homeschool, stay-at-home mom that does dishes and stuff. Well, I have a dishwasher now because I'm rich. (laughs) Got one for my birthday a couple years ago. Anyway... But what about those that you graduated with your liberal arts degree and, uh uh-oh, you're the floor supervisor at McDonald's. How'd that happen? You make minimum wage. You thought that you were going to lead the earth and you're leading a daycare. And, you know, you fill in the blanks. Our lives are full of mundane activities, as Wes Martin talked about yesterday. By the way, get that CD. That's good stuff. We're filled with mundane activities. And we think that God only wants this special, perfect little life. And then we'll come and offer it to him. Our one look of adoration towards him. When it's all lined up, we got our ducks in a row. And then it will be pleasing in his sight. No. One look. If one look ravishes his heart. Oh my goodness, you guys. Just one. He didn't say, give me 50 hours a week in the prayer room. He says, where you are right now in your normal mundane life, would you look up at me because I'm ravished over you? Yoo-hoo. Yoo-hoo, it's me, God. He's ravished over you. And all you have to do is give him your one look. That's all he's asking. But I tell you what, you give him one and pretty soon you want to give him two. And then you give him three and you give him ten. And pretty soon you're living lives of prayer without ceasing. And it started with one look. And one look matters. It's not all or nothing. It's something. Give him something. You know why? Because it matters to God. You thought your love didn't matter. It matters to God. Your one look I love that. I love that I can commune with Jesus in the mundane of my life. And I look up and, I mean, I'm telling you, we've got some crazy days at my house. (laughs) Got kids going insane and, you know, things get broken and spilled. 
all at the same time. Why is that all at the same time? And you try to scream, Calgon, take me away, and nothing happens. The commercial's a lie. But what if in the middle of it you said, Jesus, I give you my life, and I say you're good to me in the here and the now, and if this is what you want, here am I. Here am I. And you invite him into your life every day, and you live before the audience of one. You see, I had grand dreams. Dwayne and I spent 10 years on the mission field. And I got saved when I was 16 and had some radical encounters that would lead me to believe that I was going to be someone great. I remember being 17, writing in my journal, knowing that journal would be published one day like Amy Carmichael's was. (laughs) And then, you know, one thing led to another and I find myself not living this great, extravagant, wonderful life. But coming home from the mission field feeling um, like I'd failed. Like I didn't have anything to say. There was no anointing. I forgot who I was. My identity had gotten all messed up. It was in what I did and and trying to earn the, the favor of God with my ministry attempts. And it wasn't working. But when I find out that one look ravishes his heart... Just one look during my day, I give it to him. And when craziness breaks out, I give him again another look. And I say, I'm here. I'm going against the grain, and I'm giving you myself. And when the Bible says, when the Son of Man finds faith on the earth, something rises up in me, and I say, yes, you will find faith in my life. I will be watching and waiting. I don't care what's dealt me. I will be standing and I will believe that you're good. And I believe that regardless that I may not preach to a million people like I was told when I was 17, God is good. And I live before his eyes in the secret place. You're a college student. You have plenty of opportunities to live before the audience of one. And it matters. You're doing your studies You you stop and say, Jesus, I love you. You're all that I want. You're all that I live for. And you just ravish the heart of God. My goodness. There are times in the day where, you know, I I can't block out three hours and there's craziness all around the home. And I'm like, I want to be with you so bad. It's killing me. And, and you think stupid things, like if I didn't have these children, I'd be a woman of God, instead of the fact that my children are making me a woman of God, because <laughs> they display my weakness all day. <laughs> no. What if in the middle of your college exam, you say, God, you are a superior pleasure to me than anything else. And you direct your thoughts against the grain of society, and you give yourself to him. There's sometimes in my day I, I take my iPod out and I turn on Yearn by Shane and Shane and I go, okay, four minutes, ten seconds. I don't think the house can burn down in that amount of time. I put it on and I crank it up. <laughs> and I go, there it is. I give you one look today. Here it is. I'm giving you my heart for four minutes and ten seconds right now. And then I'll do it again in a couple hours. I'm like, ugh. And what happens is, is there's a groan that gets created in you. And you begin to long for Jesus. You start with one, you guys. You don't start with 500. You start with one. 
and you give it to him with your whole heart and you keep going and you don't deny yourself and you don't quit and you don't give up and you don't let the enemy disqualify you because you came from a broken home. It's a lie. It's a lie. He wants you. Now give him yourself. The next thing that I love about this, you give one look and he loves it. Just one. I appreciate that. And then you, then it says, and give me one, with one link of your necklace. So the neck is, is the submitted, is your will. And it's your submitted will to God is your neck. And the necklace is, is your acts of service and sacrifice and sincerity. And one little act of sincerity, just one, ravishes the heart of God. See, you thought you needed 50,000 before you could please God. Give him one. Start there. This is 101. I'm living 101. I wish I were a PhD on this stuff, but I'm just, I'm grassroots. Here it is. I'm trying to live before an audience of one in the daily mundane activities of my life. And I believe it ravishes the heart of God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do with all your heart as unto the Lord, knowing you'll receive a reward. Okay, he didn't say when you pre- only when you pre- preach on the platform and only when you sing on the microphone and only when you're leading worship in front of 10,000. He said, whatever you do, whatever you do, when you're going to school, when you're working your minimum wage job, when you're taking care of your elderly mother, when you find out that you have four children under the age of four and you're steeped in the mundane, you think you're going to scream yourself to sleep every night. Right then and there, you offer your acts of service and say, Jesus, I give you this. A cup of water in the name of Jesus will be remembered. What are you offering him that he's remembering that you don't even remember anymore? Do you know that one day you'll stand before him and he'll show you all the things that you offered in his name and you will have forgotten that God does not forget It matters to him. Your love matters to God. Not only does it matter, it ravishes him. We think that our relationship with Jesus is about us. What about him? What about him? He wants you. It does something to the heart of God when you respond to him. When you say yes back to God, it matters. See, it's not a one-sided relationship. Just like Dwayne and I, we're, we have this, you know, fabulous marriage, which I told you about. Everyone's jealous of our marriage. No. We, it's, we love each other, but how crazy would it be if I were insecure in Dwayne's affection for me? If I start asking you guys, do you think Dwayne really loves me? And I, I wander around to everyone. I go, did he say anything about me today? How many times did he mention me on the platform? In his book forward, did, do you think he said enough about me? That's gross. If I'm insecure in my husband's affection, it's gross. You guys, Jesus is a bridegroom. He calls you a bride. You're not called to be insecure in his love for you. You're called to be anchored, secure, set, 
rooted, grounded, that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses even knowledge. It's not selfishness to want to be confident in the love of God. It's your safety. The love of God is your safety. It will keep you till the end. It will keep you till the end. It's the wisdom of God that you search out God's heart towards you. And it's the wisdom of God that you don't just see these extravagant expressions as something you can't really possess. You can. He has so much more for you. You are living so far away from all that he has in his heart towards you. He is ravished over you, conquered, overwhelmed, seized, taken hold of, spellbound, enraptured, wounded, desirous. He wants you and he wants it all. He sees that you come with your little package. He says, come. He says, come. Come to me. Come to the throne of grace in your time of need. You have need of the love of God. It's time to not be wishy-washy in your true understanding of this. The end of the age is going to have a bride that's mighty in love, who agrees with her position of privilege, who exercises his authority because she knows his heart. I'm calling you today to start small. Just start small. If you can't picture yourself as the one like, like Moses in the end of the age, fine, then don't. Picture yourself as the one in your dorm room saying, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Have my life. Start there. I'm going to close with this. I had a vision, and I shared this before. I think I even shared it last year just for a couple minutes. Well, there's tons I missed, but it's okay. Um, I had a vision several years ago. It was before Elijah was born. And in this vision, it, I was feeling, well, before that, I was, oh my gosh, steeped in self-pity, feeling sorry for myself, like at a whole new level. <laughs> and um, I'm sitting there at, on one of our Sunday night meetings, and I'm saying, God, I, I'm no one's first thought. No one's, no one's after me. I'm not pursued. I'm not cool. I don't speak. I don't do this. You know, I'm just going on and on. I'm not pretty. I'm, you know, just, it's, a, it's bad. It's a really bad day. I'm out of control in my thoughts, out of control. And I'm just sitting there and, and kind of praying, kind of whining, really. And just then, um, oh, and I say to the Lord before I have this vision, I say, I feel like a runner that you pulled out of the race mid-stride and then you told me to watch other people run the race I was supposed to run. And I said, and I'm mad at you. And so I'm just kind of having this dialogue with the Lord and all of a sudden this vision, yeah, I have my eyes closed, pops up in my mind's eye. And it's me... And I'm running a race, and um, I'm all lined up in the lanes like the Olympics. And beside me, I've got Mike Bickle and Dwayne and Alan Hood and a couple other people that I perceived as big dogs. And um, I'm lined up, ready to go. And I feel awful. I'm like, I'm not going to win this race. Why am I running? They're going to beat me. This is ridiculous. And so I just am like, ugh, whatever. Just then a tunnel forms over my lane. And the Lord is at the end. And he's cheering me on like when I cheered my children on when they took the first step. And he's saying, run, run. And I went, oh my gosh, I forgot. My race is before you. That's who I'm running for. My race is before God. I'm not in competition with these people. I'm living for you. 
So I begin to run and I feel good and he's cheering me on and I feel like, oh, Jesus loves me and I love you. And then the same situation happens again. And um, the all the runners are there and I do the same thing. I'm feeling sorry for myself. I look around. I realize I'm not going to win the race. And just then I, I realize I have a diaper bag over myself and a book bag and a child on my hip and I'm holding another one, you know, by the hand. And then I have a stroller wrapped around my ankle. <laughs> and the Lord says, run, run. I'm like, oh, I don't know. And so I'm like, I'm not going to win. And then just then the tunnel formed. I'm like, oh yeah, this is my race before God. And so I, I say, I can't run. It, it, I'm not going to, I'm going to be slow. And the Lord clearly says to me, yes, you will be slow, but it's making you strong. And he kept saying, running is winning. Running is winning. Running is winning. Running is winning. And I, and I realized I need to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And I need to run with perseverance the race marked out for me. And when I grow weary and lose heart, I need to consider him who endured the cross, scorning its shame. I need to consider him when I want to quit because he didn't quit. He went to the cross. He shed real blood and he did it to buy me back so that I would be a bride eternally joined with him. And you are the one that he wants. And you thought your love didn't matter. Running before the eyes of God right now in your current mundane, boring life when your unfulfilled prophecies hang over you and make you feel weighted down is exactly where the Lord wants you to start. Right now. Someone invite us to stand. Go ahead and start now. I just want us to lift our hearts before the Lord. And just be thinking about areas of resistance you have to receiving His love in an extravagant way that causes you to be extravagant back. 